I see your flower has blossomed again. Yes, our trip into the negative universe gave it a second life. It gave all of us a second life. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I'm feeling a bit old and got some cricks in my neck, and I could really use something to make me feel a little bit younger. You know what? I'm feeling so young. I think I just want to play with my toys. Who cares <laughs> about running a starship? I don't know how to run a starship anyway. Wait, who am I? Who are you? Well, ladies and gentlemen, everyone listening, this brings us to the end of our voyage on Enterprise Incidents through the animated series, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year in 2023 at the time of this recording. And we are joined by a very, very special guest for the 22nd episode of the animated series, the final episode of the animated series. Our special guest was a publicist for television shows like BJ and the Bear, the Bionic Woman, the powers of Matthew Starr, and one of my all-time personal favorites, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. He is the author of books that I have that I didn't even realize were written by him, Billboard Book of 100 uh, Number One Hits and Sound of Music Family Scrapbook. He wrote not just one, but two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, including Menage a Troy and The Game. He also wrote for shows like the American Music Awards and New Year's Rockin' Eve. And for the purpose of this episode of Enterprise Incidents, he not only wrote this final episode, The Counterclock Incident, he was also the publicist for the animated series. What a special guest. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents, Fred Bronson. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, I want to first say, uh, why did you not write the episode using your name? And why, you know, John Colvin? <laughs> well, it's a very good question. And it's the story. The I'm going to tell you the real story. It's been twisted over the years. And... It's like playing the telephone game where it comes back to you wrong. So I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. So, of course, it was my dream to write for Star Trek. But I was 17 when the original series went on the air. I still wrote a script because uh, I was taking a college course in TV script writing. Uh, but at 17, I didn't know who to give it to or how to... I didn't have an agent. I wasn't in the Writers Guild. So there was no way I was going to. So when the animated series came along, and now I'm working at NBC, and like you say, I was the publicist on the show, I thought, okay. Well, first of all, when it went off, you know, after Turnabout Intruder, and the series was ended its first run, I thought, well, that's it. No more Star Trek ever. I'll, <laughs> never, I'll never write for it. Never going to happen. And then along comes the animated series with everybody's voices. I think I could write for Star Trek. So I did try during the first season. I pitched several ideas to Dorothy Fontana, to DC Fontana, and everything was rejected. Even though I thought I had some pretty good ideas, but they didn't, they didn't, Dorothy didn't like them or mm -hmm. take them. So now it's season two. Only six episodes are being produced. 
and I see my chances like really dwindling. And at one point, they had bought, uh, they had purchased four scripts. They needed two more. So I, I, I worked very closely with Lou Scheimer and Norm Prescott, but especially Lou with Filmation. So I was able to go to Lou and say, I know this is a long answer to your question, but I'll get to the, the answer. <laughs> I went to Lou and said, Lou, I, I really would like to write for the show. I've got some ideas. Send them to me. So I wrote a, a treatment for an episode I called War Game, where the Enterprise finds a planet where Earth's World War II is being recreated. Mm. They beam down to see what's going on, and it's August 6, 1945, and they're in Hiroshima. And oh. they know what's wow. going to happen in a few minutes. So NBC rejected it, even though Star Trek, the animated series, was for adults and children. They didn't want to do a World War II story on Saturday morning. Oh, I don't blame. <laughs> I mean, that's a that was a heavy story you came up with with the atomic I, bomb in Hiroshima. <laughs> it kind of was, yeah. So now they bought How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, and now there's one slot left. And I thought, well, I got to come up with something right away. And that's when I thought of the 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 kernel of the idea that became the counterclock incident. And I wrote it up. I sent it to Lou and Norm. They loved it. They sent it to NBC. NBC approved it. Now, why did I write it under another name? Because I worked at NBC. I was always told that we were allowed to write for NBC shows, but not CBS or ABC. But you had to get permission from your boss. So I went to my boss and said, just want you to know, I'm submitting something to the animated series, and I just want to get your permission. And he said, you can't write for NBC shows. That's a conflict of interest. You can only write for the other networks. And I thought, I think he has it backwards, but I this is what he said. So I said, oh, okay, well, then I won't do it. Meanwhile... I had to come up with a name. I couldn't use my own name because I, was, I wasn't going to lose. This was obviously my very last chance to write for Star Trek. Yeah, no yeah. more Star Trek ever after the animated series. So I grew up in Culver City. Oh. And John was just pulled out of thin air. No, no meaning. I found out later that at that moment, at that period of time, Iowa's two senators were... Dick Clark and John Culver. Mm. But I didn't know that when I picked the name. So that's why I had to write it under John Culver. So the irony is my dream came true. I wrote for Star Trek and I couldn't tell anybody. That is wow. amazing. You know, I, I got to say too, Fred, uh, you not only wrote what, what I think is one of the very best episodes of the animated series. Thank you. But Fred, you know, I haven't really watched the animated series in a really, really long time until we started, you know, doing these deep dives every episode. Sure. And it's been such a such a thrill to see how much the animated series, when it comes down to it, really, truly is Star Trek. But with the counterclock incident, what you did was you brought Star Trek full circle from the very first treatment 
that Gene Roddenberry wrote back in March of 1964. You brought it full circle by taking the name Robert April, which was the original captain of the Yorktown, not even the Enterprise, and you brought it full circle by by making Robert April a Commodore who was the first captain of the Enterprise. And that really not only brings Star Trek full circle, but but also with the counterclock incident, Steve, I feel like this episode really brings a close, a full close to quote unquote original Star Trek as we had come to know it. From this point forward, Star Trek will never be the same with the movies and the, the other shows and everything. But and before we get into uh, you know, everything about uh your your you know being a publicist, Fred. Steve, right. what did you think of the counterclock incident? I agree with you, Scott. I really like this episode. And I think it, it unlike the end of the original series with Turnabout Intruder, this feels like the end of a series. This feels like a finale. It has both that mix of going back to square one and renewal and hope and all of those things. And so where the, you know, the original series ends on kind of a whimper, this ends in a nice way. So I, I really do enjoy it. I, I just think, among other things, like what you said, Steve, and what I was saying before about the full circle element, uh, you know, this is an episode that uh, uh, I think makes a great companion of sorts to the deadly years from the original series and also the episode Rascals that Adam Nimoy directed for Star Trek The Next Generation. And in addition to that, you know, you really, you know, ask a very grown up if you will, question Fred about, you know, being useful about, you know, I don't want to retire, you know, I'm not too old ageism. I mean, this is a, and again, this is a, an animated episode that was on Saturday mornings. And the fact that it holds up in, you know, we're older, I'm older than my parents were when, when the animated series was even on, uh, you know, Saturday mornings, but, but this all started for you, Fred, when you were a publicist for the animated series, how did that come about? I joined NBC in August of 71. I had had an internship through college in the publicity department. I was a journalism major. And most of the publicists were former newspaper people. Uh, so I fit right in because uh, yeah. I was a journal, you know, journalism student. And uh, it was a six-month internship. I spent a week with each different publicist. And at one point they said, you know, we'd like you to go up and meet the personnel department. I thought, well, that's interesting. And a month after I graduated, they hired me. So I was there for 12 years. Now, my previous experience at NBC is that I joined the march that John and B. Joe Trimble organized after season two. Yeah. That I, march. I was in that march. And you know, we marched from a, a nearby park to the studio in Burbank, and a gentleman came out, the head of publicity, Hank Rieger. He's the man who then, a few years later, hired me to work in the department. And I made no secret of the fact that I had marched on NBC, and they knew that I loved Star Trek and science fiction. So when we knew that there was going to be an animated series, you know, I was the logical choice to be <laughs> the publicist, but it's also why I got Buck Rogers, Man from Atlantis, Powers of Matthew Starr, Voyagers, The Fantastic Journey. Pretty much every science fiction show NBC put on 
Quark during my tenure there was all, it always landed in my lap, which was great. You know, I loved, but that's that's why I was the publicist of the animated series. So I have a completely not self-interested at all, totally not about me question for you. <laughs> we'll see. What advice would you have for, let's say, a filmmaker, an artist who's absolutely terrible at self-promotion? What is the number one thing that you would tell them to help them advance their career? Well, today, not when I wrote the episode, but today, be on every social media. Have a Wikipedia page. Let people find you. If they want to look you up and they can't find you, you know, they're not impressed. And, you know, people count you know, how many followers do you have on Twitter and all of that. So be known, be uh, be available. And I don't follow my own advice because I'm only on Twitter or whatever they're calling it today. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. But I have to say Twitter has served me well in terms of publicizing anything to do with Star Trek or the Eurovision Song Contest or my Billboard reporting and so it's it's work for me, but have a presence on social media. I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, with social media has really helped us get the word out about enterprise yeah. incidents. So, so has word of mouth. I mean, people really recommended enterprise incidents to other Star Trek fans. Like, oh my god, you got to listen to this. These guys really know what they're doing. Um, but I agree one hundred percent. You know what I want to know, especially now that I know that you were part of. The march, the march to NBC in Burbank that that basically was the save Star Trek campaign that you see all those photos of people, Spock for president, you know, uh, uh, my other cars, the Starship Enterprise, stuff like that. You know, yep. that was what saved Star Trek for the third season. So yeah. when you met Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana, were they like, oh, my God, this guy has to be our publicist for the animated series? Well, they didn't have a choice. NBC assigned me. And, but I already knew Gene at that point. And I knew Dorothy at that point. And the reason I knew Gene was, well, I won't count the first time we met because that didn't lead to anything else. When I was in college, season one, I interviewed him for the college paper. Oh, wow. So I went to Paramount, sat in the outer office waiting to go in. I heard this jackhammer go off. And it turned out to be my heart. And I'm not joking. My heart was pounding. I am about to meet Gene Roddenberry. So like I say, that was a one-off. But then when I was a publicist at NBC in 1972, I was assigned to a pilot called Questor. So oh, then, yeah. Yes. That's how I got to know Gene well. And then I was the, then as the publicist on the animated series, I treated it like, well, it was the second coming of Star Trek. I treated it like it was a primetime show and I lavished attention on it. So I said a lot of interviews for Gene with the press. And so we did get to know each other. And then in 1974, which was the same year as Counter Clock Incident, um, his assistant at Warner Brothers, Gene was leaving Warner Brothers. He had an office there. And um, his assistant didn't want to leave because he had seniority at Warner Brothers. So Gene needed a new assistant. And I had a friend who was out of work. 
and I knew her from NBC. And I thought, and she was a huge Star Trek fan. And I said, you know, I think you ought to go up for this job. Uh, I can arrange for you to get an interview. And her name was Susan Sackett. Sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Jean asked her during the interview, um, are you a Star Trek fan? She said, oh, you know, not really. Uh -huh. Later, he said, well, it's a good thing you said that I wouldn't have hired you if you had said. <laughs> and then, as we all know, she was with him until his death in October of 1991. So she was Jean's right hand for 17 years, which only increased our friendship because I would go over every couple of weeks and have lunch with them. And so it just grew from there. So the other the other question I, I need to, I wanted to ask is so okay so you're getting going and you're you're working you're on the second coming of Star Trek which like I said at the top of this conversation it's it's Star Trek even though it's animated even though it's half the length of a original live action episode it is absolutely Star Trek something we pointed out many many times over the course of our of our of our podcast here so. Like, what was your take on like when you started to see the show and like maybe get a handle on the scripts? Like, like you know, especially your interaction with now Dorothy Fontana, who was now the story editor. So I was over at Filmation a lot because I could, and uh, that's how I got to know Lou and Norm very well. And like I say, I already knew Dorothy, but I got to know her better during this period. And uh, give I probably. It was the most publicized Saturday morning show in the history of NBC. And I, I don't say that lightly because, like I say, treated it like a primetime show. But yes, it was Star Trek. It was the actors doing their voices, Dorothy overseeing the scripts, uh, hiring writers who had worked on the original and other writers, coming up with sequels to episodes. It was true. It was authentic. And it was canon. It wasn't some dumb Saturday morning show. It was intelligent. It could appeal to adults and children at the same time. It was a dream come true to have Star Trek back. So, of course, by now, you know, through the years, you know, we heard the story of Leonard Nimoy taking a stand when it came to George Takei and Michelle Nichols returning for the voices of Sulu and Duhora. But can you tell us from your perspective, because you were there? Well, yes. Yeah, so I went to that first recording at Filmation. You know, later on, they would just record people individually. But for the first two episodes, they brought everybody to Filmation and recorded the first two scripts. I had an NBC photographer there, which is why you've seen things in the press of them recording the episode. And yes, Leonard spoke up. Where's George? Where's the show? I'm not doing this. If I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Cause yeah, of course. I don't yeah. remember his exact <laughs> words, but he, he did take a clear stand that if they weren't involved, he wasn't going to be involved. Now I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but as far as I know, it was budgetary. They were going to pay for five actors. They weren't going to pay for seven actors. But after Leonard took that stand, they really had no choice and good for Leonard. And of course they should have had George and Michelle. I mean, of course they should have. What were they thinking? Right, right. But I think it was a monetary issue and 
certainly not a creative issue and certainly not anything against George and the show. What, what about Walter? Because I feel like Walter, you know, I see, I mean, even though he came back to write The Infinite Vulcan, you know, yes. what was the story with that? Uh, again, budget, just not enough money to pay all those actors. And, you know, I guess Leonard didn't take a stand for Walter. I don't know. <laughs> but because I never heard him mention, you know, it was very clear he wanted George and Michelle back. Um, but I guess, you know, maybe that was a bridge too far. But of course, filmation being Lou and Norm were just the best people. Mm. And of course, they wanted Walter involved. And so they bought his idea and he wrote a script and he was involved. I, I'm also curious, you know, so this is like 1973. So, so Star Trek, the original show, is starting to really find its audience in syndication. And, you know, I'm I'm proud to be a part of the syndication generation. I was, you know, in 74, you know, 1974, when I saw Mirror Mirror, Steve is also part of the syndication generation. But, you know, what, as the show is like now suddenly getting very, very popular and you got the second come with the animated series, like what, what did William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly think of all that? I don't think I ever asked them, to be honest, except uh, to know that who wouldn't be thrilled, first of all, you know, in that time period of the original series, actors did not get residuals. That didn't happen until around 72. So it wasn't like they were going to make more money from Star Trek being rerun all the time. But the fact that it was so popular, I'm sure the idea is, well, maybe there will be more Star Trek in the future occurred to them, and maybe there will be more work. It's like songwriters from the 60s you know, when Carol King wrote, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? They thought it was going to last for a couple of months and then no one would ever think of the song again. And, you know, 60 years later, that's still, you know, part of our national heritage and our culture. I don't think when they were making the original Star Trek, they had any idea that we would still be talking about it, enjoying it, getting new episodes 60 years later. But this was all part of building that pathway. And can I tell you something that a piece of conversation from the lunch with Gene in 1990, mm -hmm. I don't know how we got to this point, but I remember the lunch vividly. And I had just seen a play that uh, Walter and Mark Leonard did uh, about adult Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And I said to Gene, can you imagine People are still writing stories about Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And you know what? In the 21st century, they'll still be writing about Kirk and Spock. And he said, yeah, and they'll do it better than I did, because that's the kind of guy he was. Hmm. I don't know if he meant it, but he said it. And um, I just look back on that now and say, gee, I guess I was right. <laughs> <laughs> you sure were. That's that's a fantastic story, Fred. I I have a question that I think you are uniquely suited to answer, which is that when we started doing the animated series, one of the first things we talked about is, well, this is a Saturday morning cartoon show. Is it for kids? And of course, the the rule that we always heard was, it's not for kids. This is real Star Trek. We're just making Star Trek. It happens to be animated. It happens to be playing on Saturday morning. But my question for you, as the publicist. 
who were you marketing the show to? Were you focusing on marketing it as a kid's program on Saturday morning? Or were you reaching out to all those college kids that were gathering around their TV sets because they were huge Star Trek fans? Where were you trying to sell the show? Great question. I was, I was literally trying to sell it to everybody. And you know, adults, children, people who watched the original series, people who didn't. I I mean, there was a lot of press on the animated series. Now, it wasn't all because of me. It was because it was Star Trek, and the press loved Star Trek, and they loved Gene Roddenberry, and they had interviewed him during the course of the original series. So they these were people who knew him, you know, in a professional sense. And so they were very willing. Every major reporter did interviews, a lot of interviews with Gene, uh, and we got a lot of publicity. So I was going for a wide shot scatter shield just to get everybody. What was that like for you, Fred, for for Lou and Norm at Filmation, and just everyone associated with the animated Star Trek when Star Trek won the Emmy for Outstanding Entertainment Children's Program? Exactly. It's first Emmy after getting some nominations from Leonard. Wow. Uh, um, well, of course, that happened after, you know, my tenure working on the show. Uh, so um, I wasn't hanging out with Lou and Norm at that point. Uh, so I don't know what they thought, but I could only imagine. You know, what an honor for the series, for Filmation, to win an Emmy <laughs> after the original series didn't yeah i mean that was it was really something well so the counterclock incident like we said is the 22nd and final episode of the animated series its air date was october 12th 1974 which makes it the 101st episode of star trek to be broadcast this is the final episode of the animated series of course kirk spock mccoy and the crew in the enterprise would return in live action form on December 7th, 1979 for Star Trek, the motion picture. And Steve, I'm curious to know what was going on in the universe when the counterclock incident aired. Well, sadly, as, as this aired on October 12th, 1974, on October 9th, there was a busing riot in Boston. And I'm glad that we have no more racial conflict going on in the world today and that we resolved <laughs> all those problems Yeah, uh, on the same day. Uh, the great Oscar Schindler, made famous, of course, by Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List, passed away. Mm. On and this one, so every once in a while, when I'm touring around the internet trying to find things that are going on, I find a story that just kind of fascinates me, and I have to dig a little deeper. And this is from a person named John Hathaway, who I had never heard of, and he had just completed his hundred-week, fifty thousand six hundred-mile bike ride across fifty-two countries and six continents. And I just went. Wow, that is amazing. It ends up he he rode 130,000 miles in his lifetime. I just like th this guy set all sorts of records for long distance riding. And the number one song was I Honestly Love You by Olivia Newton-John. I had no idea that she had a number one that early because I didn't discover really until Greece many years later. The number one movie was one that we talked about last week, which is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, came right to the top. And the number two movie I have to mention, just because I wouldn't call it a guilty pleasure, but it's one of those odd little movies. I always forget about it. And whenever it came on TV, I always watched it. And that is the film Hard Times, starring James Colburn and Charles Bronson. Wow. 
Uh, I'm wondering if any of the solo Beatles had uh, songs on the charts uh, around uh, October of 1974. I'm guessing that they probably did. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, certainly. Certainly Paul. Paul with wings, you know. Ringo. Ringo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they may have all been on the chart at that point. Oh, uh, so, Steve, what do you say? Should we dive into the counterclock incident? I, it is it is bittersweet that we are doing this, but yes, I believe that we should. And of course, like every other episode of the animated series, we start with a captain's log and a star date. So the star date in this case is 6770.3. Now, Fred, what I've been doing is I've been taking the animated episodes and looking at the star dates and kind of plugging them in to where they fit in the chronology of the star dates in the original series. So for season one of the animated series, it actually worked out quite nicely because a lot of those uh, episodes took place during basically the third season of the original series. But your star date, my friend, is is after all our yesterdays and before Star Trek The Motion Picture. But what makes that actually work so well is because we find out at the start of this episode, the counterclock incident that the Enterprise has gone back to the Nova of Beta Niobe, which was the star that went Nova at the end of our yesterday. So even though my theory is thrown out the window, this actually works perfectly. <laughs> it does. And you want to know why I did that? Why did you do that? So you'll notice quite a few references to the original series. The, the flower from Capella 4, which we'll call it the really new Mark planet. Yep. Uh, uh, the Beta Niobe Nova. The real reason I did that, I was aware of and had a copy of B. Joe Trimble's Star Trek Concordance. Right. And I thought if I put in all these references, which today I guess we'd call Easter eggs. Yeah. If I put in all these references, I'm going to get a lot of listings in the next version of the Concordance. <laughs> Nice. Under Capella 4, it's going to say not just Friday's Child, it's going to say the counterclock incident. That was that was the only reason I did all that. I could have picked some Nova we'd never heard of before. I could have picked some Flower we never heard of before. But I thought, I'm going to tie it in. Now, of course, it's such a tradition to ref, you know, refer back to previous episodes. Maybe I started that. Well, well you know what? That sounds like something a publicist would do. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, it's funny. I was going to bring this up later, but I'm glad you brought it up now, which is that because there were tiny little references to other episodes in the original series every once in a while, but they were very small. And I think the animated series does that much more often. And I'm just wondering if we can credit the animated series and maybe specifically you, Fred, with creating this idea in Star Trek that we can be a more connected universe. It's not just standalone, that there's continuity, that we have history. And I think that's one of the great advances of the animated series. I, you know, I actually, until we were doing this interview, I never thought about it before, but maybe <laughs> I did. <laughs> the Enterprise is on course for the planet Babel, where ambassadors from all Federation planets are waiting to honor the Enterprise's distinguished passenger, Commodore Robert April, first captain of the USS Enterprise, and for the past 20 years, Federation ambassador at large. Fred, uh, the idea of bringing back Robert April, what was the inspiration behind that? And also, uh, if you've been watching the new show, Strange New Worlds, what are your thoughts about them bringing back that character? 
I will tell you all. So um, I didn't bring back Robert April. I invented him. Uh, so I needed an adult on the bridge who would be older than our crew. So when they revert to their youth, we still have someone who's still an adult who can get the enterprise. So that's where the it started. And then I thought, well, huh. did they ever say Pike was the first captain? So I went back and rewatched the cage and the menagerie. They only say he came before Kirk. Never do they say he was the first captain. And I thought, well, then Pike has a predecessor. I can I can do that. I can invent that. And once I had that idea, I thought, well, I need a name. Well, I'm sure we all remember there was a book called The Making of Star Trek, the first ever Star Trek book. Yep. And I remembered in that book was a list of names. I think it was nine names that Gene considered. You mentioned Robert April had some history with Gene and with Star Trek that the public didn't really know about it. I didn't know about it either at that point. I just saw the names. And of course, Pike's on the list, Kirk's on the list, leaving seven other names. And I thought, I'm going to pick a name Gene already liked. So maybe he'll like the idea that I'm, you know, and got this character in the show. And I was just drawn to Robert April without realizing, first of all, that was the name of a character Gene wrote into Have Gun Will Travel. So it's a name he liked. And then, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, like you mentioned, the Yorktown, and he would have been the captain. But I didn't know that. I just knew I, it was on the list. I liked the name. And that's how he got named Robert April. Now, you asked about Strange New Worlds. Yes. So, you know, over the years, Robert April appeared in novels, but never live action. 2009, when they were making the J.J.'s first film, at that same time, I got a call from a company, production company, creating DVD extras for the a box set of the first six films. And they wanted to interview people that Gene put in the motion picture as extras, which was Susan, myself, David Gerald, yeah. John and B. Joe, Chris Duhan. I think there were five or six of us. So would I come to Paramount and be part of this group interview? Of course. So we're at Paramount. We did the interview on a limbo set on a stage. And then the producer said, now we want to walk you over to stage 18, where you did this originally 30 years ago. We walk over. Well, it turns out it's the stage where J.J.'s filming his first Star Trek movie. And we're standing outside waiting to go in. And I'm standing with Chris Duham. And a golf cart goes by, and Chris says, hey, J.J. And the cart pulls over, stops, and J.J. Abrams comes over to talk to Chris, who's already filmed a scene for the first movie. And Chris introduces me as a writer of a couple of episodes in the animated episode. And J.J. says, hey, oh, great. Have you seen the new sets? And I said, it's kind of high security, so no. He said, do you want to? Yeah, he said, well, come on. He, I get a wristband and I have to sign an NDA and he escorts us onto the set. Um, B. Joe and John, David Gerald, Chris, who's already seen the sets, were there for about 20 minutes. And I think, 
this is my chance to talk to J.J. Abrams. I love Lost. So I walked over to J.J. and said, J.J., you know, I understand you've got Chris Pike in the show, in the movie. Yes, we do. Well, you know, in my animated episode, I introduced his predecessor, Robert April. And J.J. said, yeah, he's not in the movie. <laughs> we had a laugh. 2013. The movie is under, you know, no one's talking about, is it con, is it not con? Yeah, yeah. And I read in February uh, the one of the first reports from a journalist who went to J.J.'s office. And he said, based on what I saw and heard today at J.J. Abrams' office, I think one of the major characters in the new movie is Robert April. And I thought, what? <laughs> So I called the reporter. He said, yeah, there was a storyboard, and it's all about Robert April. Well, it turns out, we all know now, Robert April's not in the movie. It was a storyboard from the comic book, the uh -huh. prequel, the four-issue prequel, that was all about Robert April. Mm. So I thought, well, I've come close. Will I ever see Robert April in live action? And then along comes Strange New Worlds. 48 years after my animated episode, there's Robert April in live action. So I was thrilled. Wow. There, there was some controversy because apparently they drew him as Caucasian and cast a black actor. And the haters on Twitter, you know, yeah. had their say. So um, somebody tweeted me and said, what do you think of all the controversy? And so I tweeted, you know... I understand that the actor playing Robert April is younger than my art, Robert April, and I'm okay with that. Right. Good. Well played. Well played. And then I tweeted Adrian, who I didn't know. I said, uh, Adrian, I'm, I'm the guy who created Robert April in the animated Star Trek. Thank you for bringing him to life on the screen and doing it so well. And he sent back a very, very nice note. So... That's how I felt about Robert that's April. That's awesome. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Well, and as you said, this Robert April is a bit older because what we hear in the log is that he, at 75 years, Commodore April has reached mandatory retirement age. And I'll tell you what I like about this, Fred, in terms of the writing of the script, is that it's, and this is what the original series obviously did really well, and the animated series is a pretty mixed record, but this is thematically linked to what the episode is about. The plot of the episode, which is about getting younger, is connected to the character that we meet who's struggling with getting older. I also, But I do think it's weird that the Federation has a mandatory retirement age. Well, one of my regrets about that episode, and remember, I was only 25 years old when I wrote, not excusing it, but I was 25 years old, and to me, 65 was old, even though now yeah. I'm way past that, and I don't think it's old anymore. And so the idea that they're going to advance the retirement age to 75 was a big deal. Right. Of course, they should have made it 120 or something. Yeah. But so that's one of my regrets that I wasn't thinking far enough ahead in the future. Yep. Well, we'll forgive your 25-year-old self. <laughs> and he says, and I do love this line. No matter where I've traveled in the galaxy, Jim, this bridge is more like home than anywhere else. Yes, Commodore, I know the feeling. I love that moment. I just love that moment. These two guys, both of whom could rightly call the Enterprise 
home. That's such a such a such a great feeling, especially when you watch it all these years later. Well, there's a little story about that because there's a piece of you know, I tried to write the time, and Star Trek animated was three acts, seven minutes each. Mm-hmm. Well, my script was a little long, not a lot long, but a little long, so it it was trimmed, and a piece of dialogue is missing was cut that made that sound different than it was meant to sound. Mm. The reference sounds like he is talking about the bridge, but there was a piece of dialogue about the ship. And then he says, it's more like home to me than anywhere else. He meant the ship Mm. and not the bridge. So, but you know what? It's, it still works. That totally works. To me, she was always like my child. I was there in the San Francisco Navy Yards when her unit components were built. Is this the first introduction of the San Francisco Navy Yards? I must have got it from somewhere. I didn't make up San Francisco. There had to have been a reference, and I honestly can't tell you where. But I know I didn't I didn't invent that. Well, I'll tell you where that came from is okay. on the bridge, on that dedication plaque right by the turbo lift, it says USS Enterprise, San Francisco, California. So that was there from, you know, I guess going back to maybe uh, where no man has gone before, you know, that uh, uh, the Enterprise was made in San Francisco. Well, I knew somehow I knew it, but I, I didn't remember that. As a as a San Francisco boy, I have always loved that. I've of always course. loved that. As a California boy, I loved it, even though I grew up in L.A. <laughs> um, and then we meet uh, Sarah April, who we find out was the ship's first chief medical officer. Jim, I didn't realize how many of the tools I used in sick bay were designed by Sarah. As the first medical officer aboard a ship equipped with warp drive, I'm afraid I had to come up with new ideas all the time. Uh, which I think is really cool. Also, you have a couple things here. So Sarah April is voiced by uh, Michelle Nichols. And uh, Robert April is voiced by the actor who voiced more characters than anybody else on the animated series, James Doohan. What did you think of Jimmy's voiceover as Robert April, Fred? Actually, I enjoy I enjoyed both of them. I thought they both did a great job and made their voices different enough from their, you know, prime characters. Uh, so I I enjoyed both performances. I really did. And McCoy, always the flatterer, says, And it's nice to know the lady is as intelligent as she is beautiful, much like the flower she carries. Oh, doctor, flattery will get you everywhere. (laughs) Uh, It's so great seeing McCoy stay in character. Like when you go back to like Shore Leave with Yeoman Barrows, when you go to Is There in Truth No Beauty with Miranda, you know, when DeForest Kelly had the opportunity to be a charmer he was right up there with shatner as kirk and and he didn't do it as often but you know when he had moments like this in counterclock incident even though it's animated i still it still brought me back to those earlier episodes southern gentlemen would you like to hear a funny story about dr mccoy in the animated series sure so as the publicist and my best friend at nbc happened to be the they didn't call themselves censors, but he was the broadcast standards person assigned to the show. And Saturday morning is stricter broadcast standards guidance than, you know, primetime because 
children are watching. So we would go over to Filmation every time a new episode was ready and watch it on a moviola, which for really young people, it's a very tiny screen where they actually put the film in and why so, you watch it. That's how I learned how to edit was on a moviola. That's how old and I am. You're not old, so good. That's good. Um, so we're watching uh, the sequel to Shore Leave, Once Upon a Planet. And suddenly, Dr. McCoy has his back to us on this plantation, and a yellow stream is coming out of him, hitting the ground. And they go past it. I go, wait a minute. What did we just see? And Ted Cordes, the broadcast senator, said, I, I don't know. Uh, can we rewind that? They go back. He's taking a leak. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and Ted said, you can't do that. And they said, we know. We just put it in for you. <laughs> if you would catch it. So I guess there was a blooper on the animated Star Trek. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. Um, and uh, Sarah April is carrying a flower, which, as we mentioned before, is from Capella 4. But it has a lifespan of only a few hours. This morning, it was a seedling. Within a few hours, it will be dead. And again, Fred, you're hitting on the theme. We have the person forced into retirement. We have the very short life of this flower. And then we talk about another beautiful thing, which is the Beta Niobe supernova. It's also beautiful, but very deadly. So now we have a very long-lived thing in the supernova contrasting the short-lived thing in the flower, and it's about to die. I think that's all great. And of course, this supernova is very familiar to us. The supernova is familiar because, like I mentioned, that was the star that went nova, uh, totally annihilating the planet Sarpedon. Beta Niobe, you were present when the star first started its explosion, Jim. Yes, we were, Commodore. And uh, what he should have said is, we barely got out of there with our lives. Uh, you know, that episode, chronologically, Fred, is the last episode of Star Trek. If you, you know, Turnabout Intruder actually took place before that. But uh, uh, we love all our yesterdays. Uh, that's just such a great episode. Me too. In fact, one time I was at a luncheon. I, I forget if it was part of a convention. And I was seated at a table with Gina Resti, who wrote that episode and was a librarian at UCLA. A librarian. And, and Dorothy was at, yes, exactly. And Dorothy was at that table too. So that was kind oh, of fun. That's cool. a good conversation. And I was there as a fan. I mean, this was before I ever had any professional association with Star Trek. Sensors are picking up an unidentified object, traveling at an incredible speed, presently on collision course with the Enterprise. How fast is it traveling, Mr. Spock? at a speed that should be impossible to achieve. Something on the order of warp 36. I think that's probably the highest speed we ever heard in Star Trek up to this point. I mean, I hold the record? <laughs> as far as I know, Scott, I defer to you as greater knowledge. but I, I don't know of anything beyond uh, the animated series that ever approached or surpassed warp 36. So I think, Fred, you get the speed record uh, for <laughs> anything that has traveled on uh, Star Trek, whether it's live action or anime. Oh, I never thought of that before, the record part. <laughs> uh, probably, scientifically, it was totally wrong. Sure. And they say, what, the ten, warp 10 is the fastest you could, I don't know. I just made it up. You know, th there was no, there was no science 
advisor to the animated series. I, I think Star Trek, particularly in the original series and the animated series, was, not to use the pun, but playing pretty fast and loose with how this stuff worked. Um, but this thing seems to be heading right for them at first, and then they realize, no, it's just a coincidence. It's actually heading right towards the supernova. That's a course of self-destruction. Lieutenant Uhura, open hailing frequencies. I want to talk to that ship's captain. And then they go, we're going to put a tractor beam on it. Now, the one thing about this, and again, you know, like I said, fast and loose, but if that thing's going that fast, it's already it's already 10,000 light years away by the time yeah. that they go to put this tractor beam on them. But they do, and they have a small effect on it, and then they get a call from the ship, and a woman comes on screen speaking, obviously to me, backwards. <laughs> You know, what's interesting is that when I was rewatching this, again, I, I couldn't even tell you the last time I, I watched most of these animated episodes, but I just thought, wow, this is a very exciting first act. There's a lot of suspense and intensity with the with the ship and how fast it's going. And then you see this woman speaking, you know, what, what appears to be backwards. Uh, and again, this is just a 23 minute and 30 second episode of animated Star Trek, and it hits all the beats. Thank you. <laughs> and, and we play the tape back backwards, and she says, I am on a priority mission. Your beam is slowing my progress. Release my ship at once, or I am doomed. And here's where I disagree with Kirk. He should have just released the ship right then. I mean, like, <laughs> what are you doing? This ship is way more powerful than you. It's way faster than you. Like, she says she's doomed if you don't release her. Just release her. What are you doing? Of course, they do try to uh, disconnect. Later on, they do. Later yeah. on, they do. Um, right. And it ends up that it, they're slowing this other ship down, but mostly they are speeding up. And now they're heading towards the supernova. We have three minutes and 42 seconds before we hit it. And at this point, Kirk does say, I have no choice. I have to release the tractor beam. I can't destroy this ship and 430 people to save one person. Mr. Sulu, release our beam. But unfortunately, we can't release the beam. Saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I think another thing we can say in the animated series is that the sh the ship and all of their technology is so much less dependable in the animated series than it was in the original. Everything breaks down all the time. It's kind you of know, like my computer. Well, watching, watching <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, watching the animated series, especially watching them every week like this, and like I really felt like Shatner, William Shatner's vocal performance on the second season episodes was stronger than a lot of what we heard on certainly the second half of the first season. Uh, maybe just got the hank of it, or maybe it was only six episodes or whatever. But I feel like, you know, hearing, hearing, you know, Shatner with the dramatic pauses, you know, be the captain of the enterprise. Uh, right. This is Star Trek. It's absolutely Star Trek. It, it is. And I, I felt it then. And I, I feel it now. Of course, there was always that argument about, well, is it canon? And uh, even back then, Gene said Robert April is canon, which I appreciated. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think I think the series is more appreciated now than ever. And especially with, you know, it's no longer the only animated series. Who would ever think we'd have three animated series, let alone two? So I always thought there should have been a next generation animated series, but well, it's funny you should say that because at the the San Diego Comic Convention, uh, it was announced that they're doing uh, sort of short versions 
of animated episodes that are going to cover all of the shows, not just like, you know, Lower Decks or Prodigy or the animated right. series. Right. Uh, and you're going to see a short with uh, Jonathan Frakes as Riker. So you're going to get your wish. Okay. About time. That's yeah. cool. So we can't disengage the tractor beam. We're now going over warp 20. We're going to hit the supernova in 58.53 seconds. And now Kirk gets to turn to Commodore April and say, I'm sorry, Commodore. This is April. It looks as though we may not reach Babel. Babel, from Journey to Babel, another reference that you threw yeah. for uh, Very purposeful, Star Trek concordance. Yeah. Yes, Joe exactly. Trimble must have loved you. <laughs> I know. I never. I don't think I ever told Pete that I did that. Just <laughs> for the importance. Maybe I did. As starship personnel, we were always prepared to give our lives, Captain. We are still starship personnel, Captain. So this is getting pretty scary. Uh, and they finally come up with a plan. Was like, okay, when the when the other ship goes into the Nova, it's going to break up, and so we could take that last possible second to turn away and maybe save everybody. So we've got a countdown. We've given orders to Sulu and orders to Scotty. And we're getting ready uh, for this moment. And the tension is building. And Scott, I'm going to say something which will absolutely shock you. Okay. You know that music that I find so terribly irritating? Yes, I know it quite well. (laughs) I think they're using it pretty well in this case. Oh, thank goodness. We're ending on a great note here. This is awesome. It's a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Contact in 39 seconds. They're about to go in. They think the ship is going to break up. They say, now Sulu to pull away. And that doesn't work. And now we're counting down. We can't pull away. Uh, Robert April and his wife, they hug. The flower is withering. The tension is building. We enter the Nova thinking that the Enterprise will be destroyed. And it spins around. And there's these sparkles and these lights. We're still here. Lieutenant Uhura, can you get us a visual? And up on the screen, instead of a black field with white stars, we have the reverse, a white field with black dots. And strangely enough, the Enterprise is now flying backwards. And Kirk ends Act 1 saying, Where are we? So a couple questions for you, Fred. First of all, what did you think of the animation, especially when you saw the you know, the shots of the Enterprise, you know, which look just like the shots of the Enterprise we saw in the original series. And also, like, did you did you get to talk to, like, uh, Bob Klein, the storyboard artist, and also uh, the director of the second season episodes, Bill Reed? Um, I did just in my visits to Filmation. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like we were buds or anything. Just, you know, but definitely had conversations with them when I, when I was there. Now, of course, I would go back and ask a lot more questions than I did then. But, you know, hindsight is, you know, 2020. <laughs> uh, but yes, the animation. Overall, of course, it was limited animation. But at the time, that's what we had. We didn't have all the incredible animation that we have today. I mean, both Lower Decks and especially Prodigy. Brilliant, beautiful animation. Well, it didn't exist back then. At least people didn't have the budget for it. I'm not talking about, you know, Snow White or, you know, but anyway, it was of its time. But I thought they did a great job. I love the, you know, I did write about the you know, white field with black stars, but they, they made it look great. I was I was very happy. I, I, I'll tell you, it, it, it makes me happy to know, Fred, that you are still watching Star Trek to this day. Well... 
seriously, pretty much every time I sit down to watch a new episode, like I did yesterday with, you know, the crossover episode on Strange New Worlds, I say to myself, you know, I can't believe I'm about to watch a new episode of Star Trek, and it's almost 60 years later. That's crazy. You know, I think back to no more Star Trek ever after Turnabout Intruder. I couldn't have been more wrong. (laughs) And we're happy that you were. (laughs) So we come back in Act 2. Kirk says it is the most alien landscape I've ever seen. And what we hear is basically they've had to relearn how to run the ship because everything is working in reverse. And I'll just say, you know, it's like time travel episodes or things like that. It's like. I wouldn't think too much about this one. <laughs> it gets a little, because it kind of, the logic gets like, wait, how does everything work like this? It's it's well, very strange. I have a funny note about that. Yeah. Years later, when Susan was working for Jean, she found Jean's annotated copy of the counterclock incident with his notes in the margin. And at that exact point in the script, where we say everything's working in reverse, Jane wrote, really? How do they pee? Yeah, this is this is all, all the stuff that I was thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> like eating, peeing, you know, er- yeah. everything. Gravity. There's all sorts you of know, things that just... It makes no sense, but, you know... But it's I a fun concept, it. yeah. <laughs> um, and one of her first signs of everything working in reverse is that Sarah turns, turns to Robert April and says, the Capella flower. And at first, he tries to shut her down. Like, hey, we got more important things to deal with than your flower. And she says... Before we entered this universe, it was about to die. And and now it's in full bloom again. How is that possible? It's as if it were growing younger again. I, I can almost feel it while I'm holding it. And it's for me, as soon as this moment happens, you start to go, oh, oh I get I where this, this is. Going. Yeah. Yeah, I know where this is going. Yep. Because yep. the cr- chronometers are running backwards. Time is going in reverse. And now we can talk to the captain of the other ship. I am an explorer of space. I was caught unaware when Amphion, previously a dead star, went nova and came to life. I was pulled into the star. But instead of burning up, I passed into a universe where everything operates in reverse to my universe. And what we find out is that it was the a dead star going nova in our universe coinciding with a nova in their universe, which is a star being born. And that somehow created a portal between the two universes. So my question, Fred, is how much of that idea of sort of having a stars go nova in the same space in different universes, how much of that was inspired by the the uh, ion storms that were happening in the two universes that brought Kirk and Uhura and McCoy and Scotty to the mirror universe in Mirror Mirror? Honestly, that didn't cross my mind. It should have. Uh, and the whole idea of the Novas and uh, it's probably ridiculous. It probably <laughs> is. It's not, you know, it is science fiction, but I think if you thought about it, yeah, that wouldn't happen. They would just blow up. It, it's but, on the it's on the fiction side of science fiction. Definitely. <laughs> it's definitely fiction. I took li- the liberty of making it up. What, what's funny to me, I actually really didn't think about Mirror Mirror. The one that I thought of more is Alternative Factor. That this feels more like that universe than it feels like the mirror universe. Right. It's much well, better than the alternative factor. 
And and so they go, well, we just got to find, you know, a, the, it's two Novas in the exact same places again. And they go, well, that's going to be really hard. And she goes, well, let's go to my planet and our, our scientists can maybe help you solve the problem. And what I like about this is so often we meet cultures in Star Trek that are violent or dangerous or different. And that's what we're overcoming. And here it feels like we met the Federation. We met these really nice people who want to do the right thing, which is cool. That I never thought about, but you're right. Yeah, this is like this universe version of the Federation. So the woman's name is Carla Five. And of course, she is also being voiced by Michelle Nichols. So we are going to go to Carla Five's planet, Arit, which I'm watching the counterclock incident. I'm going, Arit, Arit, wait a minute. Hmm, this is a, a, a backwards uh, uh, universe. Things are going in reverse. And what is Arit spelled backwards? Terra. Exactly. Oh, I got it. Thank you, Fred. I got it. <laughs> yes. Thank, I, and I'm sure a lot of people did not, but yes. Steve, so, come on, throw some props to the man's here. <laughs> well, well done. I, I also figured that one out too. Ah! Well done. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm sure none of us mind growing younger instead of older for a change. It pleases me, Jim. If we stay here long enough, I'll no longer be at the mandatory retirement age. And that's really returning to the theme. And now we're almost back at the planet Eret, and we're going to beam down and we hear that we have the coordinates for her son's library. Her son? We don't have time for children's games right now, Scotty, but beam us down. I, I think that I don't think that joke works that well for me. Sorry, Fred. <laughs> OK, but, but it, it does set up that uh, Carl Four, who was uh, Carl Five's son, uh, is older. And uh, people are born old and they die young. And I went, wow, Fred Bronson was way ahead of the game for the curious case of Benjamin Button. Yep. And don't think I didn't think about that when that movie came out. But do you want to know what inspired that? There is an inspiration for the whole idea of time running backward on a. Sure. So as a teenager, I started reading the works of, I'll tell you his name in a minute, a particular science fiction writer who became my favorite writer of all time to this day. But then nobody really knew who he was, except if you were a diehard science fiction fan. But the world didn't really know who this guy was. His name was Philip K. Dick. Oh, geez. <laughs> and he wrote a novel called Counterclock World. Oh, and that's where I got the inspiration to do an homage to Philip K. Dick by having a universe where time runs backward and then to title the episode The Counterclock Incident. That's great. Wow, that is an amazing story. I love it. Uh, I love Philip K. Dick. Big, 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 huge Blade Runner fan. Is yes, yeah. I mean, thanks to the movies, everybody got to know who he was. I even met him once at a science fiction convention and here at the world the world labor day you know convention and it was in la and you know here i was at nbc working with gene roddenberry and bob hope and dick clark with no problems and now i'm meeting philip k dick and i'm like bob bye i'm your number one <laughs> totally tongue-tied we could remain forever awed with the differences between our universes carla five but we must discover a way to return to our positive matter universe. 
exactly the problem I have been working on since Carla informed me of your troubles, Captain Kirk. You know, we've talked a lot about the limited budgets for the animation, but one thing I think they did really, really well is the age changes at each step because they look in this scene just slightly younger. Uh, and I think, and it's those slight changes that are sometimes harder to do than the big changes. They did a great job. I agree. The The steps down to uh, younger and younger and younger. They really I agree. And the first thing we discover is there aren't any Novas going in the same place at the same time. That's not going to happen. But the other thing we find out is that Earth and Eret are in exactly the same place. And we superimpose the maps of our Milky Way with their universe. Um, and again, my brain went, well, is the, are the rotations backwards and how would they stay in the same? And I, you know, and then I'm like, no, shut up. Stop thinking about this. This is not going to work. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> um, I'm to get through it. <laughs> and finally they come with the idea of like, well, we can't find a, two Novas going off at the same time, but maybe we could start a Nova. Yes. We could act as a midwife giving birth to a star. Then we could have two Novas in the same position and theoretically return home. Problem is enterprise can't go fast enough to make this work. And the captain says, you're welcome to use my ship. I love this. Like, I have 435 guys. I can't fit them on your tiny little ship. <laughs> we can't use her ship to transport us, Captain. But we could use it as an unmanned ship with our tractor beam attached. It could work. That's how we arrived here in the first place. It should work, yes. But any miscalculation anywhere along the way... And we'll be plunging tail first into a supernova. So the end of act two. And I got to say, again, rewatching Counterclock Incident, having a whole new perspective and appreciation for the animated series, which is airing on Saturday mornings. And I'm thinking all this talk about the universes and 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 jumpstarting a supernova and and uh, Arat and Terra and Earth and I'm thinking this is the quintessential example of an episode of the animated series where, Fred, you wrote Star Trek. You did not cater to a younger audience. You just wrote an episode of Star Trek because I'm thinking there is no way that there was anything like this anywhere near Star Trek on Saturday mornings. But not only did you write an episode that is really thought-provoking, but mm -hmm. You wrote you wrote a classic quintessential episode of Star Trek. Well, thank you. That's very very kind. I really appreciate that. You know, what I had going for me was I had already seen, you know, not all twenty one because I wrote this while they were still in production, but I had seen all these animated episodes, and I knew the tone, and I knew you know not never ever did they write down to children mm -hmm. ever. So I had that going for me that I I knew what they wanted and 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 I of course I'd rather write authentic Star Trek than talk down to children's Star Trek anyway. Uh -huh. We're back in Act Three, and one of the first things we hear from Robert April is, "I'll be glad to get home, but not necessarily to babble. It only means the end of my career, Jim." Which I think, you know, I'm really feeling for Robert April and Sarah April in this story. I think we've done a great, you've done a great job with these guest stars. We say goodbye to Carla Five. And one of the things I really like is the idea of... Whether you succeed or fail, the outcome will remain unknown to me. Yes, Carla Five. We'll burn to a crisp or escape into our own universe. Either way, 
You'll never hear from us again. That's a cool idea because it'll be the same from her perspective if they burn up or make it through. Exactly. The the idea of something that that is really going to be a quintessential life-saving moment and you're not going to know if it even works. I think the only other time we saw that in an episode of Star Trek was yesterday's Enterprise. Mm, yeah. When we see the Enterprise C go back to, you know, uh to fight the Romulans, save the Klingon outpost. And, you know, when the Enterprise C goes back through the uh uh temporal rift, it's like, well, report uh Lieutenant before uh, you know, Lieutenant Worf, uh there was something there, but it just kind of disappeared. Oh, okay, okay, let's go. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. There is a reason why Yesterday's Enterprise is my favorite episode of Next Generation, uh, with the inner light a close second, but maybe that's why. Yeah, yeah. And this is the moment that really solidified the idea that this society is kind of like the Federation, because they say, thanks for the vessel, and she says, It is a small sacrifice, Captain Kurt. Success. Mm. Like, these are good people that we're dealing with. So uh, we're heading off to the star, and we're getting gaining speed, and we ask... How much time before the youngest crew member returns to the time of birth? 18 minutes, 37 seconds in real time. But long before that, we shall all be children. And we cut to Captain Kirk, who does look now like a teenager. So I forgot, until I did my rewatch, how late into the episode we start to see the Enterprise crew really start to age in reverse. And the fact that it happens after the start of Act 3 is a testament to how well done the first two acts really are with all the suspense and the excitement and, again, the ideas, uh, the intelligence, the thought that was put behind the plotting of the episode, uh, this this really great moment with Kirk and April on the bridge referring to the Enterprise's home, this beautiful relationship between Robert April and Sarah April, uh, this 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 you know, this incredible love that they, the marriage, you know, and, and how they're willing to sacrifice themselves. Oh, and now we're at the point where the enterprise crew is going to start aging in reverse. And now it's like, Oh, now we get to have some fun here with this concept. Well, there's something, another piece of dialogue that was cut for time explains why they de-age quicker toward the end. And it was something to do with the speed they were traveling at. Einstein's theory of relativity, that and that got cut. So it should have been in there. It explains why, but you know, yep. Again, a small quibble. Um, and the other thing, the problem that we find out now is it's not just that they're getting younger, it's that they're losing their knowledge. It is possible we will soon be unable to operate the enterprise. And just to prove that point, we asked Sulu how our course is, and Sulu says, I don't know. What am I doing here? What is all this equipment? (laughs) I got to say, it's what's great is like when you see the Enterprise crew get younger. So the actors, they they all did their pitch a little higher. Yes. Talk about that, Fred. That wasn't a a script direction. They they knew what to do. It was very clever. It's very noticeable. And thank you for noticing it. And also, what's funny is like as the Enterprise crew is getting younger, so Spock, because he's older than everyone else and he ages slower, he's able to maintain his post while the other other 
you know, uh, uh, primary officers are losing their abilities. And I just like the animation. You see Spock getting younger and younger, but he's still acting like Spock and he's still talking like Leonard Nimoy in that right pitch. And you see that, like, you know, Spock is kind of getting irritated, you know, with the younger versions of the Enterprise bridge crew uh, and and Spock in total fashion from what we would see in the original series, the way he like really takes charge with Robert April, which is such a great moment after we heard everything about Spock's relationship with Captain Pike. So Spock takes over at the helm, but now we're starting to worry about Captain Kirk and how long is he going to know what to do? And Spock says, we will need to disconnect the tractor beam at the appropriate time. Tractor beam? How do we do that, Spock? (laughs) (laughs) And at this moment, which is what we expected, Spock says, I must assume command. You are no longer able to command the Enterprise. And then we hear, Mr. Spock, as long as I am aboard, I am senior officer. Boom. (laughs) And there is young Robert April. Young Robert April, but Robert April at the top of his game, Mm -hmm. presumably at the same age that Kirk was at the beginning of the episode. Robert April is there now. and, And just as Robert April was physically at the top of his game, You know, on top of everything else that is going on in this episode, you have this empowering moment where you have the original captain of the Enterprise to save the day. It's awesome. Thank you. I'm enjoying this episode more than ever. Thanks to you. (laughs) Well, that's our job, Fred. That's what we do here on Enterprise Incidents. And Spock says, You are correct, of course. Commodore April, command is yours. Commodore, I'm Captain April, Mr. Spock. (laughs) Which, A, I think is... Totally cool. And B, I go, well, how can he have forgotten that he's a Commodore, but still remember who Mr. Spock is? Like, this is, again... Some things you never forget. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't think about this too much, you know? Robert, we are the only adults on the bridge. They're all teenagers and children. We go through the Nova, we come out the other side, and we hear... We did it. We're home again. But what's the problem, Steve? problem is we got all these little kids and infants running around the Enterprise. What are we going to do with them? What's the solution, Scott? Uh, the solution is what we've seen in a few episodes of the animated series. Let's use the transporter to regenerate them because their DNA pattern is uh, and their biological pattern is stored in the transporter. So I'm curious when you when you said, uh, uh, Fred, that you know you had to make some cuts because the episode ran a little long. Was there was there a moment where we actually see some of the Enterprise crew step into the transporter as kids and step off as a, as grown-ups? No, I never put that in. I, it was just going to be something off camera. So it wasn't cut. And I definitely did it because it was, like you just said, it was established in the animated series. As people have asked me, well, how'd you come up with that? I said, well, I didn't. It was established in the show, so... I was free to use that as a device to get them back. Wow. But that brings up the bigger question. But what about us? We don't have to use the transporter. We can remain young, live our lives over again. You could command a starship once more. And Robert April's response, I have to say, completely shocked me. What a blessing to be able to live one's life over again. If the life you've led has left you unfulfilled, No, Sarah, I don't want to live it all over again. I couldn't improve one bit on what we've had together. And then they kiss. So, Fred, 
What made you make this decision with the characters at the end of the episode? Well, it's a very good question, and I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, it was one of the few notes we got from the network. There was a lot of discussion about should they live their lives over again? Should they go back to their older age? And why? What would be the motivation for them to stay young? And what would be the motivation for them to go back to their original ages? And it really was a big discussion. And it could have gone either way. I think we made the right choice, uh, the one that worked. I don't think it would have been satisfying. It would have felt like a cop-out. And even I had to ask myself, would I want to live my life over? And you know what? I love life. I love my life. Would I want to do it again? No. no I've done it. I, it would almost feel like being trapped in a prison where you have to do everything over again. Can you imagine going back to being 24 and every day of your life you're doing something you've already done? But that's not the, but I, I mean, I think that's a great point, but that's not the question they face in the show. They're not going to go do the things they did before. Well, we don't, but we don't know. We don't know. Well, the they're, world is different right. though. They're not going back in time. Yeah. But um, they're, they're going to make life choices again Yep. Uh, at the age of 30, at 40, at 50. Do you really want to do that again? Do you, Steve? Totally, one hundred percent. I w I was just texting with someone recently who I I had worked at a summer camp when I was eighteen, and we were texting about man, we were in such great shape because we just played volleyball all summer, and we were tan and we were healthy. And I was like, I would pay a hundred thousand dollars right now to go back to that nineteen year old body and be able to because I love life. No, I absolutely would do it again. It's so funny because this is this is the way art is made is that you get right to this moment, you have a choice to make and the choice you made is a lovely and romantic choice and I totally wouldn't have made that choice. I would like I I'd be like let's go be Captain April and Sarah April and go off and have adventures again. But it's not a criticism of the choice. It's a beautiful sure. choice. It's just not the one I would have made partially. And I think we have the answer because both of you don't want to re relive your lives. And I'm like, yeah, make me younger. Let's keep going. I want to keep doing this life. Well, it's tempting. It's very tempting. And of course, I'd love to go back to 19, whatever, and observe myself as a 14-year-old or you know, later a 30-year-old. And, and would I make different decisions? And I don't know. But like you say, this isn't going back in time. This is going back in your in your age um i think it could have gone either way and there was a lot of discussion about it and it was a mutual decision to end it the way we did i i do i hear both points that you guys are making as far as like you know reliving your life knowing like like with robert abel's case like what happened when he got to almost 75 and then being able to go, go reverse it and just live longer. Uh, my feeling is that I've lived a really, really, really good life. I have no big regrets that I would say, boy, I wish I could go back and do the, do this over. I feel like I've been very, very lucky that uh, I have led the life I've lived up to this point. Sure. You know, I certainly made some mistakes along the way, but I'd rather learn from them than go back and make a whole new set of mistakes that I had to that I would have to relearn from. I'm who I am at this point because I because of of everything that happened for me to get here, the good and the bad. And I just want to keep moving forward, not 
go back and you know uh live longer and and i'm just i'm good you know what i mean like i've been there i've done that i'm good but i gotta say so robert and sarah share this kiss and what i can't recall fred maybe you know is this the first kiss that we saw in the animated series i've been told and i i hadn't thought about it myself I've been told it's the only kiss in the animated series. So, mm. of course, if it was the first one, it would be the only one since it was the last episode. But, yeah, people have told me that's the only kiss ever in animated Star Trek. So so, so you have this, ep- this last episode of the animated series. It ends with the one and only kiss in the animated series. And then a message comes in from the Federation uh, after reviewing April's mandatory retirement. Uh, that they would consider an appeal to for him to remain the Federation ambassador at large. Uh, so he gets to continue having his life and living with purpose uh, and living with what Sarah, uh, Sarah's uh, Capellan flower has blossomed again. And there is this final word, the final bit of dialogue from the animated series, which says, I see your flower has blossomed again. Yes, our trip into the negative universe gave it a second life. It gave all of us a second life. Can you imagine a better, more fitting final quote for the animated Star Trek, which gave Star Trek a second life? I just, like, when that moment happened during my rewatch, I went, it was almost like you you planned for that final bit of dialogue to coincide with the second life of the animated series. Honestly, I didn't. And, but the fact that it turned out that way was just like an extra benefit. You know, there was no direction to bring closure to the animated series. Nobody said, you know, we got to wrap it up. We're all going to play poker and the sky's the limit. There was no direction to do that. And so I didn't. But I guess subconsciously, because yes, that absolutely works for the series as well as for the moment with Robert and Sarah. Scott, I had exactly the same thought. I went, this is, you know, saying it gave, this gave Star Trek a second life. The animated series, I don't know if there would have been a motion picture had there been no animated series. But I think it's part of the puzzle because the animated series keeps Star Trek alive in this way. It's like the bridge that allows them, not like the bridge on the Enterprise, but a bridge between two places, the bridge between the original series and the motion picture. It keeps it alive in people's minds. It keeps people excited about Star Trek. So I think it absolutely does, is at least part of what gave Star Trek a second life. I, you know, when I was six years old and I was and I was discovering Star Trek for the first time and I, I was recording uh, the episodes on my little tape recorder, Fred, and you were too. You're motioning like you did too. And uh, I did the same thing with the animated episodes on Saturday mornings. So yeah, sure, the music is different uh, and the length is much shorter. I could fit four animated episodes on a on a two-sided tape instead of just two. Right. But because I was listening to the dialogue, I was just listening to Star Trek. And like I, we pointed out all through our deep dive throughout the animated series on Enterprise Incidents, and the animated series gave Enterprise Incidents a second life because we were able to continue on tying 
the animated series to the original series. And that is something else that the Counterclock Incident does so well in so many ways. You know, we, we forgot to even mention that the, the, the other star that was going Nova was Minara, which was the star that went Nova in the Empath. Mm. So there's Thanks another. B. Joe Trimble. Yeah, B. Joe Trimble goes, wow, that Fred did it again. <laughs> our our final word, Fred, about, about the Counterclock incident and more specifically about the animated series is going to come from you. What do you think on the 50th anniversary of the animated series? What is the legacy of the animated series? Well, it's a very good question. To me, the legacy is what you said. It kept Star Trek alive, and it was real, authentic Star Trek. It wasn't playtime. It wasn't kindergarten Star Trek, which it could have been under somebody else's direction. But the people responsible for the show, and I mean Gene and Dorothy and Filmation and NBC, because NBC was very involved in the creative aspects of this show. They all agreed what it should be and what it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be a kiddie show. But it, much like Rocky and Bullwinkle, adults could watch that and children could watch that and get something. I got things, uh, you know, as an adult watching that I never got as a child. Well, Star Trek absolutely worked on both levels. and. It would have cheapened Star Trek if they made it a kiddie show. Mm -hmm. So thank God that everyone involved knew the right tone to take for this show. And it's as much, well, I think it's, like I said, more appreciated today than ever. But it's a, it's a part of Star Trek history. When you count how many Star Trek series there were, I think way back then people might not have counted the animated series. But today we all know it was an integral part of what Star Trek is. Couldn't agree more. Steve, any final thoughts for you on the counterclock incident? It's a really enjoyable episode. I think, and and I think, you know, way back when we were doing the original series, we talked about, or I, I kind of came up with these three things that make a really good episode of Star Trek, and they are an interesting science fiction idea, um, a good adventure and some kind of emotional content about our characters. And because of the addition of Robert April and his wife, that's where we get that emotional content. And so I think it really it really hits all those buttons. I think this, unlike Turnabout Intruder, is a really, really nice way to end the series. Uh, I, I agree completely. I, I just was so, so happy to see the animated series. On, to end on a note that wasn't just one of the very best episodes of the animated series, but one that one does one that doesn't just bring the animated series full full circle, but one that just brings Star Trek full circle. Fred, you brought up the book "The Making of Star Trek" by Stephen E. Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry. That was one of the first books I ever bought, and I bought it just for the pictures, you know, in those two sections there. But when I was really old enough to be able to read it and appreciate it and see that that was the first book of its of its kind to look at the making of a television series but also it was written at the time that star trek was still in production between season two and season three so that fly on the wall 
uh, a count of the two and seeing all the names listed for the suggested captains and all the starships listed for this for the various starship names but to to bring it full circle from that first 1964 treatment with robert april uh really it could not have ended the animated series in a better way and like i said like this brings the original quote unquote the original era of Star Trek with the gold shirts and the red shirts and the you know the mini skirts it brings all that to an a, a close because when Star Trek moved on and we saw it again you know uh, 6 years later with the uh, the motion picture in 1979 5 years later like that was a different thing and then next gen and DS9 and Voyager and so on even strange new worlds is a different thing even though they brought back the colors um but I'm like you Fred I love that here I am, you know, at the stage of my life, and I'm still watching brand new episodes of Star Trek. And I got to say, Fred, this conversation has just been fantastic. And to me, you're having you as a guest for the counterclock incident makes me feel like you are the Robert April of Star Trek, the animated series. Well, you both uh, have given me a new appreciation for my own work because, you know, I don't overanalyze my stuff. I don't think about it. You just do it and you never know how it's going to be received. And to hear both of you talk about it in the way that you have, I just am very grateful to you guys for, for everything. Thank you. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us. I'm so glad that, that this all worked out for this to happen. (laughs) God, Steve, thank you both. A lot. And yeah, we overcame any technological glitches that nobody knows about to get this done. So thank you. It wasn't easy, but it definitely was worth it. So that, everyone, is what we think of the counterclock incident. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. On Twitter, we're Enter Incidents. On Instagram, we're Enterprise Incidents. I think this is the perfect time for you to subscribe to the show. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Overcast, Downcast, YouTube. Anywhere you can get your podcasts, you can get Enterprise Incidents. If you're on Apple Podcasts and haven't left us a review, we would love to get your five-star review. They very much help the show. If you're on YouTube, you can leave your comments there. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And my other podcast, of course, is The Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And you have all heard me mention my Great White Shark documentary, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, many times. But I just found out something I didn't know, which is unbeknownst to me, my distributors uh, sold it to a company called Get Factual, which has a YouTube website. So Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear is now available for free on YouTube. So please check that out. I am very, very proud of that documentary. Uh, Scott, how would people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And, you know, this is a uh, bittersweet uh, feeling that uh, we have come to the end of our our deep dive through the animated series. So if you are just kind of now discovering us, well, you've got 22 episodes of deep dives through the animated series to catch up and listen to. And you're going to be doing that during the year that is officially the 50th anniversary of the animated series, which first premiered on September 8th, 1973, seven years to the day that the original series first premiered in 1966. And speaking of the original series, if you're only listening to Enterprise Incidents now for the very first time, well, 
you've got a whole lot of catching up to do because we did an entire deep dive through all 80 episodes of the original series where we treated the original series like a serialized overreaching arc and it opened up the world to the original series in ways that not even we could have foreseen so you got a whole lot of enterprise incidents enterprise incidents to catch up on make sure you share enterprise incidents on your social media platforms so more people can discover us fred real fast where can people follow you on social media oh thanks for asking two places i'm on twitter at Fred Bronson, easy enough. And I finally launched my own website, which has photos of me on the set of Menage Troy and quite a few photos with Gene and Susan at various events, uh, a couple with some of the other actors from Star Trek. And I, that's just at fredbronson.com. Well, thank you again so, so very much. And next on Enterprise Incidents, please join us for our wrap-up of Star Trek, the animated series that is next on Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>